As we begin reading in the book of Hebrews, chapter 13, beginning in verse 4, it says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? At first glance, when I began reading through chapter 13 again, my first thought was, you know, this is kind of like a shotgun where it just gives a, a blast of all these different separate little subjects that are out there. But as I went through it more and more, I saw that there's a definite connection with all these subjects. They kind of identify body life and what our life should be like in, in Jesus Christ. But I find that within this paragraph that we're looking at here today, these subjects are very closely held together for a reason. When we look at it, he's dealing with the issues of of marriage and sexuality, and he's dealing with money. And those two are very strongly linked together in the fact that their passions and their desires. If I see one thread that ties both of these things together, it's that the goal within us should be this contentment or this satisfaction. That's the main thrust of the passage is that of seeking satisfaction or being satisfied. And that makes a lot of sense when you think about it. I think satisfaction is a key to our existence. Some of our historical documents say that the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. When I think about that, that idea of being satisfied is so completely entwined with those ideas of the enjoyment of God and the bringing honor and, and the glory to God. John Piper has made the point repeatedly, and God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. Recognizing that our best effort at being bringing honor and glory to God as our main purpose in our life is most accomplished when we are ultimately satisfied in who God is. And I find that ultimate satisfaction in God. When I look back at the Garden of Eden, God had provided for Adam and Eve everything. They had an intimate fellowship with God that they experienced on a daily level. They had all that they needed. They were completely comfortable. No crying or pain. No rift in their relationship with one another in the intimacy level there or their relationship with God. They had everything so great. And that serpent was able to come along and make them unsatisfied with what they had. He casts some doubt and he says, Did God really say you don't eat any, uh, from any of these trees? We just can't eat from the one tree, Eve told him. The day we eat of that tree, we die. The serpent says you won't die, you'll be like God. In other words, God is holding you back. And all of a sudden, everything that they had began to kind of fade into the background as they thought about what they could have. But she didn't even have any specifics and one, it was a lie to begin with. And so she doesn't even have anything except for what her mind can manufacture about what life could be like. But all of a sudden, her life that she has has become dissatisfying to her on the hopes of something better. And because of that dissatisfaction, she gave in to the temptation and she ate the fruit that she's not supposed to. So you see, satisfaction is crucial. If we're satisfied in God, we overcome temptations. If we're dissatisfied, we fall to temptations. The same pattern that I see in her life and in Adam's life, I see in mine. When I, when I fall to temptation, it's because I think that whatever this thing is that's tempting me at the moment is going to give me happiness that's above the level of happiness that I have right now. I'm going to enjoy this. It promises something. And if I recognize that that's outside of the boundaries that God has made for me, and I recognize that God is good and God is loving so much so that He'd give His own Son for my salvation 
then obviously my best shot at happiness is within these boundaries that God has given to me. And if I'm satisfied in that, then I overcome the obstacles, the temptations. But if I'm dissatisfied, then I would fall. And so this idea of seeking satisfaction is crucial. These Hebrew believers have been going through a lot of struggles and, and enduring a lot of things for their faith, but they're, they're becoming weaker. They're questioning their faith in Jesus Christ. And when you do that, you, you can, it's easy to get dissatisfied. That's what God is dealing with with these people at this time as he's dealing with their pursuit of happiness, their pursuit of satisfaction in their life. And he does it with two areas that are probably the greatest areas of temptation for mankind. And the first area that we look at is in seeking sexual satisfaction. God says that marriage be honored and the marriage bed be undefiled or be kept pure. And the reason I call it sexual satisfaction is because that seems to be what he's spoken on. He does use the word marriage to begin with, but then instantly he goes to the marriage bed being kept pure people being faithful in their sexual relationships with one another between husband and wife. And then also he goes into judgment on people that find themselves not keeping themselves pure in these different ways. And so obviously a big part of what he's thinking about as he's expressing this to us is in our sexual relationship. In doing this, he gives us three helps along this line. And the first thing that he demands is that he demands respect, that they would respect the marriage relationship. Remember, this was instituted by God. It wasn't created by us. It's not a man-made foundation. Why is a piece of paper going to make my relationship with this person any better? Uh, Because it's not just a piece of paper. It's a commitment. And it's a commitment, it's a joining, a union of two people, two people becoming one. And there's more in that than we even understand. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that if we sin in other ways, we sin outside of our body. So when we sin sexually, we sin against our own body. There's things that happen even within us physically that I don't think we even understand. And emotionally and spiritually, I I think it's a much deeper issue than we give it credit for. God made sexuality to be enjoyed within that marital relationship. It's to be an expression of what we have in our relationship with one another. It is a graphic picture of the union of two people becoming one. It's an amazing thing, but taken outside of its bounds, it becomes cheap. Unmarried and married alike are supposed to respect marriage. Marriage should be that thing that little girls and little boys aspire to and that adults enjoy and widowers and, and widows look back on with fondness. And enjoy the memories. Now part of what he might be dealing with in this, it might be dealing with something within the early church that looked at the idea of singleness being kind of a holier state than marriage. And even the Apostle Paul recognizes the practicalness of singleness in his own life. He talks about how he wouldn't be able to make the sacrifices that he makes for God if he had a wife that he had to be taken care of as well. So in his pursuit on the mission field, there was a practical way that singleness was to his advantage. But at the same time, he said, not everybody's made for this. Most people are made to marry. And we look back in Genesis, God says about the creation of man at first when he had just made Adam and hadn't made Eve yet. It's the first time that God says something wasn't good. Every other day he got to the end of the day and looked at what he'd done, said, behold, it's good, it's good, it's good. And then all of a sudden he makes Adam and then he says, you know what, it's not good for man to be alone. And then he made Eve and then he said, now behold, it's very good. And so God is the one who created marriage, and God is the one who honored marriage and demands the honor of marriage. Well, within the early church, there were some struggles among people that say, you know what, we're going to sacrifice that part of our life 
in order to serve God better, which there's nothing wrong with somebody doing that if God's calling them to do that. But that was kind of looked at as a holier state. I, th- I think we can see its progression as we look farther on when you get to uh, Roman Catholicism and when they start having the idea of monks and nuns. That's kind of carrying on that mindset. I'm, I'm going to be married to Christ. I'm going to be married to the church rather than married to another individual. And so that singleness gets elevated to kind of a godliness but the problem is that's not really how God intended it all to work. In fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, it says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. You see, one of the influences that the early church dealt with was of these people that pushed an asceticism. The Epicureans said life is found in the pursuit of pleasure, fine pleasure. Asceticism said the purpose in life is by denying yourself pleasures. And so that kind of took hold in different places within the church. And people said by denying yourself these pleasures, you become closer to God. And they went to great extremes. Even in the third century, a man named Origen and others um, participated in castration to try to get closer to God. And so it's possible that in Hebrews he may be addressing some of that and saying, look, don't look down on marriage. Marriage is instituted by God. It's honorable. The bed is to be kept faithful. And it's to be honored among all people. But you know what? It's not just in that way that the institution of marriage is challenged. In our society, it's challenged by the push of same-sex marriage, they call it. The Bible's very clear. Marriage was between Adam and Eve, between a man and a woman. And God made them specifically to complement one another. And it's really a simple thing to grasp. It's, it's not difficult. It's, marriage is, is the merging of two complementary yet different elements to, to form one and to function with purpose and design. So much so that we use that to describe other things. When I'm dealing with plumbing and stuff on somebody's house, we have male parts and female parts. When I think of even nuts and bolts, we have the, we have the same thing. With a nut and a bolt, we have marriage. Two things, very different, but designed to go together, and they come together as a union, and they function as a purpose. The Bible describes homosexual activity. I don't even want to call them homosexuals because they're not created that way. That's not a race of people. It's an activity. And the Bible always treats homosexual relationships or homosexual activity as just that. It is activity. It's people that participate in that kind of behavior because it is not a marriage. I remember when this really started becoming a real push, I remember somebody saying to me, we need a new term. We need a term that, that just identifies marriage as it has always been known. And as the church has held one position on the concept of marriage for over 2,000 years, now all of a sudden we have churches popping up that want to expand the vision of marriage that was never expanded in the Bible and in the will of God. They said, you know what, we need a new word. And I thought, you know, what? how am I going to identify this? I speak on this. I teach the Bible. How can I make this more clear? And I thought, you know what, maybe I should just call it Natural and unnatural marriage. That's what God does in Romans chapter 1. He talks about natural relationships of man with a woman and unnatural relationships of of man with a man or woman with a woman. And he uses about eight other things to describe that relationship as well. And I thought maybe I should just do that, call it natural or unnatural marriage. But you know what? I came back to the conclusion. I thought, you know what? No, it's just marriage. One is a marriage. One is not. This is what marriage is. These These are two 
people that are designed to be able to merge together, to blend together, and to become one flesh. We see that expressed in the giving birth of children. Two people come together, chromosomes from both of them, and they form one child, one flesh. If you look at human anatomy, the anatomy is built for each other. It's designed for each other. And I don't, I don't want to get graphic about it. But the fact of the matter is there's male sexual organs and there's female sexual organs or sexual systems. They're designed for each other. They work together. When you get outside of those boundaries, the parts of the body that are abused to try to imitate what we already have naturally is seriously unhealthy. And so obviously not made for that same purpose and obviously made for a different purpose that has nothing to do with sexuality whatsoever. And so just even a simple look or understanding at human anatomy shows that this is designed to work together. That is an abuse of something that was designed to do something else. We don't need to sacrifice our terms. We just need to define them. And nature and the Word of God make it very clear. I think also other attacks on respect for marriage within our society, some are, you know, cohabitation or living together. It's astronomical the amount that that has grown. I I read something on it last night, and uh, the percentage of people living together has increased 900% in five decades. More and more people living together. But you know what? Whenever we violate God's boundaries, we do it to our own harm. You know, part of the reason that people live together is they say, well, marriages isn't working. 50% of marriages are failing. Actually, that number's gone down a little bit. It's actually about 42, 42 to 45% in the U.S. of marriages end up in divorce. But you know what? If you live together first and then get married, 85% of those end up in divorce. So this idea of trying each other out before we get married, it's, it's not working. And that's because it doesn't line up with the boundaries God made for us. God put us together. He made us. He gave us the boundaries. He knows how these things work. Really, His way is the best way. If you want satisfaction in your life, follow God's way. Sexual immorality and the adulterer, God will judge. What, what are those two people? They're two people that are looking to be sexually satisfied outside of the boundaries of marriage. You know, it used to be looked down upon if somebody cohabited or it used to be looked down upon if somebody was involved in in a relationship where they practiced homosexuality now our society is so busy elevating those things almost makes them heroes for coming out of the closet or or heroes for for going the path that feels right for you and 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 when you think about it that feels right for you When, when do we base anything on that because the fact of the matter is is if you're going to base your decisions in life on that your life is going to be a mess and we don't even carry that principle out consistently. Because otherwise, when you think about it, what am I supposed to tell somebody that says, I really feel that I would be more satisfied. I, I have a desire to have sex outside of my marriage. Well, we're not telling those people, well, pursue it. What if somebody says, I, I have a desire to have a sexual activity that's non-consensual? What if it involves children? What if we change the subject altogether? What if we, what if we change it to a subject of anger instead of a subject of sexuality? What if somebody says, I really have a strong desire to snap that person's head off? Well, hey, whatever you're feeling, buddy, I'm with you. That must be your truth, your path. We don't do that, and, that, and that's the whole point. It doesn't work. People have desires to do the wrong thing because humanity is sinful. We do have a sinful nature. And what do we need to do? We need to overcome those temptations. Yes, there are some people that have temptations toward same sex attraction. But what do they need to do? They need to overcome that temptation. They need to feed their mind with God's thoughts and they need to meditate and change their thinking on that. 
The same way that somebody that's married is thinking about having an affair with somebody that's not his, his wife or her husband. They need to change their mind. They need to suppress the way that they're thinking on that. They need to overcome that temptation. The same way that a young person is having these strong desires with somebody that they're dating. They need to hold marriage as honorable and save that for the marriage relationship. For us to live inside of God's boundaries is going to take some effort. And that's exactly what he's telling them that they need to do. Start with a respect for marriage. Then he goes into a purity, a purity for marriage. This is demanded all throughout the Bible. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 3 says, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. In the city of Ephesus, they had idol worship and they had temples that were erected to worship false and pagan gods. And within those temples, there was prostitution as a form of worship. These people had grown up in that kind of society where this was not only accepted, it would have been encouraged, and it would have been seen as religious activity, but not when they become Christians. He says, you know what, any sexual immorality, any sex outside of the bounds of marriage, that should not be even named among you. The marriage bed needs to be undefiled. It needs to be kept pure. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 13-17, through 17, it says, Food is meant for the stomach, and stomach for food. Now, he's, he's not all talking about food here. He's going to use this as a comparison to sexuality. He says, look, food's made for the stomach, the stomach for the food. But then he goes on to say, and God will destroy both one and the other. So in other words, he says, you have an appetite for food. The food's, gonna, the food's nothing. Your stomach's nothing. All going to be destroyed in the end. No big deal. But then he says it starts to deal with sexuality. With sexuality. We also have appetites sexually. But how does he handle them? The body is not meant for sexual immorality. Seed said food was meant for the stomach in your body. Your body is not meant for sexual immorality. In other words, just because you have this appetite does not mean that you should participate in it. You might have an appetite for food that means you should eat, but you may have an appetite for sex, which does not necessarily mean you should fulfill that Appetite. Depends on how it fits within the boundaries of God. So then he says in verse 14, And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become flesh, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. So then he continues on and says, flee from sexual immorality. Notice that. Flee from it. Don't try to stand strong in the midst of its temptation. Just get away from it. Those temptations are strong. I remember listening to Chuck Swindoll years ago. He talked about a, a young couple that was an engaged couple. They said, you know what? We noticed that we're having a struggle with the temptations towards sexual expression. And so we have come up with a solution. And the solution is, they lived out on the coast and everything. They said, when we're walking down the beach in this beautiful moonlit night and we're all by ourselves down on the beach, whenever we feel tempted, we're going to get on our knees and pray. And Chuck Swindoll said, don't get on your knees and pray. Run. <laughs> get away from it. This temptation is strong. Flee from sexual immorality. You know, we used to tell our kids when they're growing up, you feel like you're emotionally attached to the person that you're dating. You think this is headed toward marriage. You're getting closer in your relationship. Fine. Be alone in a restaurant. Not a lot you can do in a restaurant that's going to get you in trouble. But you know what? Nobody's paying any attention to you. You can talk about anything in the world and nobody knows. But you're safe there. Have boundaries. 
Your parents know where you're going, when you're going to be there, when you're going to be back, so that there's an expectation on you. There's a boundary. There's help in those, in those areas. And then lastly in our passage, he talks about not only the purity of it, but the protection. We receive protection by being faithful to God in these areas. He says the sexually immoral and the adulterer, God will judge. So in other words, when we get outside of God's boundaries, we open ourselves up to the judgment of God in our life. And the only way really to protect ourselves from the judgment of God is to stay within the boundaries that He's provided for us or to get back within the boundaries that God has provided for us. 50% of people sexually active will have an HPV by the time they are 25 years old. One out of two. And as I read the statistics on so read through a list of statistics on sexually transmitted diseases. I, can't, I could not believe how prevalent they are in our society. Do you know why it was a big shock to me? Because it's something I don't have to worry about. I was surprised at how prevalent all these different diseases are throughout our society. Things that they were going to get on top of through education and nip in the bud when I was a teenager are so much more spread out than they were when I was a teenager that it's horrendous. But you know what? As long as I'm a faithfully married man, I don't have to worry about those things. I'm completely protected, sheltered from that. Satan lies to us all the time. Just like he did to Eve. You're going to find greater satisfaction out if you eat this fruit than if you obey God. And what did she find? Completely false. What did she find? Dissatisfaction. All of a sudden, Adam wasn't satisfied with her anymore. She's not satisfied with Adam. They're not satisfied in their relationship with God. They're kicked out of the garden. They're not satisfied in their new home. There's complete dissatisfaction. You know what? It's it's the same with us. How many people think that they're finding the satisfaction only to find themselves diseased? Only to find that it was really an empty experience because it wasn't an expression of the relationship that God intended it to be when we do it within the boundaries that He gave us? Only to find that it left guilt and struggles that you didn't have before? Around the turn of the century, I remember I bought a book called The Five Lies of the Century. It was looking back at the previous century. And one of the lies was that the sexual revolution has set us free. And it brought out all these statistics and these studies and this research on sexuality within the United States. And you know what it found? It found that the the group of people that is the most sexually satisfied in our whole nation is faithfully married Protestant women. That's us. That's you guys. That's us. Right behind them, faithfully married Protestant men. The most dissatisfied people sexually, the single people that are out there pursuing sexuality without the intimacy of the relationship. The world would tell you they're the ones that are out there pursuing it. They're out there living the life. They're out there. Not true. Not true. What we have is so much deeper. Our marriages with the expression of sexuality involved within the bounds that God made it to be. That is satisfying. In Ephesians chapter 5, he says, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes on the sons of disobedience. So in other words, God is solid in his judgment of these issues. He's not backing off on this. He's not, he's not changing his mind. Well, not only does he talk about sexual satisfaction, he talks about financial satisfaction. And you know what, this is an issue that, you know, you think, well, is that just for the rich people? No. This actually has nothing to do with a dollar amount. This has to do with covetousness, which is your desire for things. It says in verse 5, keep your life free from the love of money. Free. I think the most free feeling that I've ever had that went along with this idea was when we took off to Bible college. Lisa and I, we had... Two kids, Tim and Dan. Zach was on his way. We decided to go, that God was leading us off to Bible college. We're in Seattle. We're headed for Minnesota. We didn't have much money at all. And so what we did was we just sold everything we had. We had this huge garage sale. Got rid of our vehicles. Got rid of everything. And we got on a Greyhound bus. 
Not the most pleasant form of travel. 42 hours on a Greyhound bus from Seattle to Minneapolis and then down to Oatana. But you know what? Lisa and I both experienced this. We, when all that stuff was gone and we walked away from the house, we left the house. I mean, we were renting the house from a friend. It's still there. And we, we closed the door behind us and we headed down the road. I thought, wow, there's nothing. There's not one place we have to be. There's not one thing that is calling for us to work on it or maintain it. There's not. We're just like free. That was an amazing feeling, and it shocked me. I didn't think I'd feel, I, I thought I'd feel anxious, maybe stressed a little bit, but it just felt free. There was nothing. I had nothing holding me anywhere. Of course, I had no place to be either. But <laughs> it's not a way to go on living your life. <laughs> but, but, but you know what? I was just amazed that just the lack of things, because we spend so much of our time in life, accumulating things and possessing things and working on things and maintaining things. And, and you know, th- things aren't bad. The Bible even says God gives us all things to enjoy. But the, the making those things the desire of our life, trying to find our satisfaction in things, is not where it's at. It doesn't work. It's a, it's a passion that never finds its satisfaction. You just keep pursuing more and more and more. It's like Rockefeller. I read a thing on Rockefeller that said a friend of his asked him one time before he was a huge millionaire, asked him, how much money do you want? He said, I want a million dollars. After he made a million dollars, same friend approached him again later, said, now how much money do you want? He said, I want, I want another million dollars. I read a thing, and I think it was, if I remember right, I think it was a Rockefeller later on in his life got asked, how much money is enough money? And he said, just a little bit more. You see, it never satisfies. He also gives us three helps with this. The first thing he calls us to do is to calculate. If you want money to have its right place in your life, by calculate, I don't mean count your money. I mean count the importance of your money. And it doesn't have to be money. It can be possessions. It can be toys. But calculate, what is that really worth to you? Is that where your value is? Is that what is important to you? You know, somebody said money is a great servant, but it's a horrible master. Money needs to be held and possessions need to be held loosely because it's not the purpose of your life. Everybody has to have it to conduct life, but it's not the purpose of your life. It needs to be held on loosely. Jesus told us in Luke chapter 12, and he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. He who gets to the end with the most toys doesn't win. You go on without them. They're all left behind for somebody else. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 10 says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. And I, I loved Ron's prayer earlier for the offering. And he just said, God, we recognize that everything we have comes from you. You know what? That's the right place for it. When we have something that we enjoy, where our excitement should be is in the one who gave it to us. The one that we recognize that this is at his hand. And the same as opposite true is when we don't have that thing that we think we might enjoy, we need to recognize that that also is at His hands. Maybe we can't handle that yet. Maybe it would lead us astray. Or maybe it's even there just to teach us to be content with the things that we have, to trust in our relationship with God. In Ecclesiastes chapter 5, he says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of the laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. If wealth is what we would have, we will never be satisfied because you will never have enough. 
John MacArthur put it this way. He says, when we focus on material things, our having will never catch up with our wanting. Well, not only do we need to calculate, be content with what you have, be satisfied with what you have, then he gives us a reason for that, and that is he calls us to confidence. He's talking about our faith in God. He says you can be content with what you have because He has promised, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Remember, He's writing to some people that have lost their homes over their relationship with Jesus Christ. And He's saying, your home may have been able to be taken away, but Jesus will never leave you. He will never forsake you. And then not only that, it goes a step farther and says He is actually your helper. He's going to help me. You know, when we, when we hear about the economy going down or things like that, yeah, yeah, there's cause for concern, but you know what? Christ isn't going to leave us. He's going to take us through those things. And that's where our confidence needs to lie. Our confidence needs to not be in the stock market. And our confidence needs to not be in our place of employment. And our confidence needs to not be in our 401k or whatever retirement thing you're going to go through or your properties or whatever you have. Our confidence needs to be in Christ. And lastly, he gives us something, a very practical help, which actually comes just a little bit later in the passage than what we read, and that's kindness. In verse 16, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Money will never bring you satisfaction in your life. Kindness will bring you satisfaction in your life.